Okay, so for those of you who did get the SMS, you would have seen that today we're going to talk about God the Unexpected. And we are going to do a, as we go through the text, I'm going to talk about the text. Um, because it's a beautiful, there's a beautiful movement. The text we're going to talk about is Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 10. <clears throat> yes, there is something strange about the picture. It's not just you, Suzanne. You don't have to go for an eye test. Uh, what do you see? Fruit. Fruit, yes. What did you say, Michelle? A kiwi with a banana. Yes, so we see, hello to you, welcome. We see a banana, everything looks like a banana, except the inside, which looks like a kiwi, which is all about, it's the unexpected. Where does the, where does the light come from? Oh, okay, okay. Right, so... Why I took this is because, as you will see, as we read the text in Ephesians, it is constantly doing the expected and then moving from that to the unexpected, which is a very good metaphor for who God is and how He works. When, if we start reading the text, before we start reading the text, Ephesians was written a little bit later, was one of the later books of Paul, and he's, so he's writing to a community who um, Christianity is not new anymore, and the other thing that, so when something's not new anymore, it's not that exciting anymore, right? If it's new, it's like, yay, this is new, and then month three, you're like, oh, you know what, again this. So that thing has started to happen, but what also happens, um, and you've seen this, I think, that's why there are so many churches in every um, town you go through in South Africa, well, even in the world, and normally they're right next to each other, is um, we start off with one faith, one group, and then somebody from the outside comes in, or maybe somebody from in the inside has a revelation and inspiration. <clears throat> we won't, won't comment on where that comes from necessarily, but then they say, but no, what you were taught as the truth, it's not the truth. This is the truth. So what happens? There's tension. There's division. Because you will get people who will then say, okay, but this is old news. Let's go with person B. And things split up. So there's both the boredom aspect, let's call it what it is, boredom, and the division, the tension, the conflict. And... Paul is writing to this group, as Paul does, passionately, lengthily, trying to explain the gospel again, trying to get them to understand what the simple truth is. And the, the, one of the big things is, we were made one with God, so we are one, and if we are ten different Places, then we are not one anymore. So we are not living the testimony of God as a unifying God, the God who reconciles. Okay? But that's just a little bit of context. Now we get to our text, 
And as I said, I'm going to read a little piece of it, and then we're going to talk about what I just read. We start off with something that's very uh, traditional, well known. Yeah, this you could have shown a little earlier. We go on. So we are in <laughs> we're in unexpected road. There are there's really an unexpected road somewhere, probably in America, probably in the south. Who knows? In the past, you were spiritually dead because of your disobedience and sins. This is uncomfortable. Spiritually dead, very dramatic, because of your disobedience and sins. So this is where we start to feel like we're being hit over the hand. At that time, you followed the world's evil way. You obey the ruler of the spiritual powers in space. The spirit who now controls the people who disobey God. So we start from a very uncomfortable place. We hear that we were lost, we were dead, and it was because of our sins, our transgressions. But then the text moves on and it brings us to a more comfortable, more usual space. Because what does the second verse say? We were following the world's evil way, but it's still us following. But then we get to the part that sounds the greatest to us. We were obeying the ruler of the spiritual powers in space. Which is who? The ruler of the spiritual powers. Don't think Christian, well, you can think Christian, but not God. Your other option then is? The devil. So, which brings us to the lovely thing that we love to do. Can you guys see? Okay, I don't want to be in your way. We love doing this. The devil made me do it. Classic. This was even more classic. Homer Simpson. Um, but the whole idea of we've got our better self, our, an angel, and we've got the devil on our shoulders, and he is very convincing. So it's about all who you choose to listen to. But it's not actually a choice you're making because the devil sounds so much more exciting than the angel over here. He's boring, so that you don't really have a choice but to go with the devil. I mean, we just have to go back a few years to somebody like Hansi Premier. I don't know if any of you know who he was. I mean, his big defense was, the devil made me do it. Why is this great? And he's not the only one who said it. <laughs> Everybody who does uh, what the previous verse talked about, the evil deeds, will often say that it was out of my control. Uh, the devil was too powerful. Why is this great? Because it absolves us of responsibility. Because then I am the poor victim of the evil devil who reigned over me. So I don't have to take responsibility for my choice. I can just say it was the devil. And everybody else should be like, oh Shane, let's pray for you and try to get that devil off your shoulder. You are immediately, you think you are um, let go of. So this is what we like. The first verse didn't sound so great because it was about our sins. We are doing them. And then it goes to what you were doing them because of that guy. And he doesn't name the guy in the text. It's not a guy. Well, he is male because males were leaders. But okay, he's talking about that guy, the devil. 
which sounds great, great. So we were doing evil because the devil made us do it, we are fine. We go on to the next part. Actually, actually, all of us were like them and lived, and them, of course, the sinners he was talking about in the previous verses, and lived according to our natural desires. Now we're getting back to us again because they're our natural desires. Doing whatever suited the wishes of our own bodies and minds. In our natural condition, we, like everyone else, were destined to suffer God's anger. Just as he's given us the excuse of a lifetime, the devil made us do it, he goes back to saying, but you know what, when we think about it, it was actually just us being selfish and doing what was nice to do. It felt great in the moment, we didn't think about the consequences, and in the end, you end up hurting people, and even hurting yourself. Our natural desires, our, the desires of our body, of our minds, the wishes of our bodies, of our minds, are always going to be selfish. And in that selfishness is where the problem lies, because then it's just about me. And when I hurt you, I can go back to the previous paragraph and just ignore the fact that it says it's because of my choices that I'm making and just say, no, but it was the devil. He sounded great. But what happens? What is the natural consequence of us living according to our natural desires? If we live according to our natural desires, we are destined, we are destined to suffer God's anger. This is the way, if you look at the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament, even the story of the New Testament, what do we hear? We hear about a God who is righteous. A God who demands, demands, in the Old Testament, strong words are used. That's why we sometimes prefer to uh, skip over the Old Testament, that very large portion of book because it's very harsh. It tends to make God sound, especially if we have the idea of Jesus meek and mild. The Old Testament is problematic because God doesn't sound meek and mild. So the logical consequence is, if we sin, we have to be punished because God is righteous. He demands our loyalty, our purity, our service. That would be the normal, and one plus one equals two. That would be the equation. And we would all be suffering. Uh, and in this case, then, of course, eternally suffering, because we will be, in the Bible, in Revelation, it loves saying, and in English it sounds so, so much more dramatic even than in Afrikaans, we will be in hell, where there will be a gnashing of teeth and crying, that sounds very dramatic, gnashing of teeth. But however you picture it, you will suffer because we will be removed from God's presence. How, whatever that looks like. We don't know because we've never been removed from God's presence. Even when we feel he's far away, we still live in a world that he has created and that his spirit is in. And this is where, so this is the logical thing. So all of us, the people hearing this would have been, okay, great. So let's throw a party 
and eat and drink and follow our natural desires because we're done for anyway. So we can at least enjoy the ride down. But then the unexpected happens. What happens as we go on? But God's mercy is so abundant and his love for us is so great that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, he brought us to life with Christ. It is by God's grace that you have been saved. Beautiful, the unexpected. He spends the whole first few verses talking about how awful we are. And we are. You can't say the devil made us awful. We are awful. And we deserve to be punished. And if things were to work out, one plus one equals two, we all needed to go to that warm place that Revelation talks of. We would be gnashing our teeth and crying. Just to go over into saying, but, but God. But God does the unexpected. He should be judging us. Because remember, what is beautiful about this? It's not that people were crying out to God and saying, we are so sorry, we are so horrible. Because then you can almost understand him saying, okay, I'll forgive you. Um, if you think about when you were kids, um, and you were lucky enough, I don't know, to have brothers and sisters, and you fought, what would happen? Um, we had this today with our godsons, who are five and three. The one kicks the other one because they're frustrated. They both cry because it's awful. And then you talk to the one, somebody else talks to the other, and you get the one who kicked the other one to say, I'm sorry. And they do mean it, sort of. And the one who receives the apology also means the hug, sort of, but not really. But you understand, because, okay, they did something wrong, but at least they're saying sorry. So I'm going to accept that. That you can understand. But here, we aren't even sorry yet. We don't know that we need love and forgiveness and mercy. We are enjoying ourselves. Look at this. He's talking about we are spiritually dead in our disobedience. We are choosing, we are choosing, to live a life that is wonderful for us, not necessarily the people around us. And in that, in that total lost case that we are, God looks at us and for, because he's God, that's the only reason, he looks at us and he says, but I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to reach out to you, even though you don't think you need me. Even though you think you're fine. And how does he do it? That's where the story of the Old Testament is beautiful. Because the Old Testament is a story of God coming and saying, I want to be in a relationship with you. And first, um, the individual fathers, and then later Israel, saying, yes, thanks, we want to be yours too. And then, after a year or two, what starts to happen, they start to drift, because it's not as exciting anymore. 
and things start happening. Because when you live according to your natural desires, you do things that you shouldn't, which lead to consequences, like people invading your land. And you are angry at God, and you feel rejected and alone. And yet, he comes back again and says, but I want to love you. How many years? Well, a thousand years of this cycle repeating itself. He realizes, I really love them, but this is not working. So what does he do? Through Christ Jesus, in our union with Christ Jesus, he raised us up with him to rule with him in the heavenly world. He did this to demonstrate for all time to come the extraordinary greatness of his grace and the love he showed us in Christ Jesus. He knew, well, I think he knew it from the beginning, but he was willing to give us a chance. And then the Old Testament happened, and what he suspected strongly was proven. We cannot remain faithful by our own device. So what does he do? He comes and takes on this bag of flesh and bones. This weakness, this, all of this, God comes and says, I will become you. I will be here and show you what it means to love me. And then I will give everything of myself so that you can have me. So you, we don't even have to, we don't have to do all the hard work. All we have to do is say, thank you so much for the grace that you gave me before I even knew I needed it. I never asked for it and you gave it to me anyway. And it's not just that he has redeemed us and that we are now forgiven, that we are not on our way down. So if you were going to throw a party and enjoy your life because we're all on our way down anyway, you have to stop because you're not on your way down. You are, if you've accepted the love of God, you are with Him. He is with you, and you are not, you are on your way up if you're going anywhere. With Him in the heavenly realms, why? So that everyone can see the love and grace of God. And this is what changes our lives. The unexpected. The expected would have been for us to be punished. The unexpected is that he saves us anyway. What are we supposed to do with this? With God who is the unexpected? You think he's supposed to do it this way, he always does it another way. Why does he work this way? Why has he redeemed us? Yes, he's redeemed us because he loves us. And honestly, most days I look at myself and I think, sure, you're great. I don't know if I would love myself as much as you do. And I'm sure all of you have had those moments as well. Why does he do it? Because... For it is by God's grace that you have been saved through faith. 
That is the only thing that he asks of us. The faith to take the gift, to say thank you. And who of us don't like receiving gifts, especially if they're wrapped in beautiful paper? It is not the result of your own efforts, but God's gift, so that no one can boast about it. So yes, we've been saved. We are not supposed to boast about it. What does that mean? I'm sure you've met, um, maybe you were, I think all of us probably were at some stage, were that Christian, who after really realizing um, what being saved meant, became that I am such a wonderful Christian person. You've met them. They are so spiritual and so in tune with God and on their way and perfect in their worship. That is starting to boast. Why? Because what does it do if I, if you meet, meet me and I am so together and God and I are so one. What does that do to you? To me, it would make me feel unworthy because I'm not feeling that close to God, maybe at that stage. And that's why he says, don't boast. Even if you are in a wonderful space with God, you're lucky enough to be in that place. Don't boast about it. Why are we not supposed to boast about it? Because Christ is supposed to be our focus. Everything should be seen through the love, the sacrifice, the forgiveness, the grace, the purity of Christ. To the graphic designers here, or the creative kind, uh, this was the best I could come up with. I'm very sorry if this is very uh, uh, simple. But literally, Christ should be the lens we look at the world through. And if I think about what I remember, what you remember, if you think about what you remember from the Gospels, then Christ was not the guy who came and said, Yo, me and God, we had this beautiful spiritual moment. And he was having wonderful spiritual moments with God all of the time. He was not that guy. Why was he not that guy? God has made us what we are. And in our union with Christ Jesus, he has created us. And this is where it gets tricky again. For a life of good deeds, which he has already prepared for us to do. Why was Christ not that Christian? Well, okay, he couldn't be a Christian because he couldn't, well, he, did he couldn't believe in himself like we believe in him. But in his belief in God, why wasn't he that believer? Because it's not, it was never about him. It was about what his faith and his life meant to the people around him. And if we think about Christ's life, then his life was a life of the unexpected. 
when the Jews thought of the Messiah they were expecting, they were hoping for somebody in nice robes, priest, from a nice priestly family, good lineage. Okay, he has David in his lineage, but that's very far back. I mean, at this stage, they are normal um, workers of wood. Not very glamorous. He doesn't, when he starts his work, he doesn't hang out with the people he's supposed to hang out with. He hangs out with everybody he's not supposed to hang out with. So if there's a list of things, the Messiah, and there was a list. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure the Jews had a list. All of us have lists. Lists of things that the Messiah should do. He went and did all of the opposites. Which, of course, is why he ended up on the cross. Because the things he did threatened them. What does this mean? What does this movement of the text mean? Isn't it beautiful how it goes? It goes from, we are awful, okay, but it's the devil. Yay! No, it's actually us. Uh -huh. But God loves us. Yay! But it's not so that we can boast. Uh -huh. It's so that we can do good deeds. Ooh, because that's... We know we should, but we don't want to do it. Because it makes us uncomfortable. And sometimes, I'm sure, in my own life, I've looked at... I look at my life and I think, what difference can I really make if I look at the world and especially for us in the South African context sure I mean I don't know about you but even after Cyril became president every party I go to there's a phase in the conversation especially if you're with Afrikaners there's a phase in the conversation where we go to the doom and gloom section which is more gloomy and gloomy than Revelation, which I didn't think was possible. It's definitely more racist. <laughs> and, yeah, at least Revelation, in the end, all races come together, all nations. So in, this, in our context now, when you're sitting at that braai and people start, it feels like they're puking negativeness. Sorry for the graphic picture, if you think in pictures. It's difficult to think especially when you hear the words, you are, there are good deeds that you are supposed to do, to think, okay, I can make a difference. For that, I'm going to show you the following. You might have seen this on TV, a, a shorter version of it. It is, yes, it is an ad for Prudential Bank. But remember, the ad guys take all the good ideas, get all the good stories, and use them first. So please, I'm not advertising um, that you should go to Prudentia. I want you to look at the story and the beauty of the story. Yeah. This is the place where the river eats the land.
Why am I showing this to you? This is a man. Jada Fumayeng. Who lives on um, the biggest island in a river that exists uh, in the world. It's a sandbar, basically, in a river. And you can imagine with a sandbar how very challenging life can be. If there are big storms, if there are floods, what happens? You lose parts of the island. And what's so wonderful is that one man took a look at this and decided that I can make a difference and started planting a tree every day. What's beautiful is from the beginning he had the vision. He didn't only have the vision of planting a tree because can you imagine what people told him when he first started planting trees in the sandbank that is the island. The island's name is Majuli. He had the vision to also think, but I want to dream about what this forest will be. So he, he ensured that he used different species of trees. In that forest that you saw, there are over 1,100 different species of tree. A man living in the same circumstance that everybody on that island was living in but who saw that planting one tree every day can make a difference. Now, that is the biggest man-made, and I'm using the word man-made, forest, one of the biggest man-made forests that there is. That forest is over 550 hectare big, because next year, for 40 years, he has done the same thing, plant a tree every day. And what is really beautiful is that not only is there a forest, which means there's biodiversity now on this, it was a pile of sand before, just a pile of sand. There's safety and it has become, it has become such a big and wonderful place that Bengal tigers have returned, that there are buffalo and elephants and so not only has he secured his island's livelihood, because only so much of it can be put, dragged away by flood, but he's also brought life back that wasn't there anymore. Does this mean I think all of us should be planting trees? Well, I don't think it's a bad idea for all of us to plant a tree every day, maybe even once a week. I think we underestimate the impact that would have. But rather an example of somebody who was surrounded by the impossible. You're living on a sandbank in a river and you see the sandbank slowly dissolving. And the thing he starts doing is actually such a small thing. It's a small thing that people thought he was crazy for, I'm sure. But 40 years on, he has created a forest bigger than Central Park. Why this, why this example? Because I think 
I know that when the night is dark or when things have been stressful, I tend to think that things are impossible. The situation in South Africa, um, the situation in the world is so crazy, so weird. Um, the, the guy that we talked about last year, by the way, David Mead, who had the, I think it was the 23rd of September that the world was supposed to end, we had that discussion about Mark. He has now said that it's going to end this year. He read some of the signs <coughs> a little wrong. So, and Nostradamus has also been dragged into it again. It's so horrible that everybody is talking about the world is going to end. It's impossible. But, we are impossible. Because if, what if things happened the way they are supposed to, according to the 1 plus 1 equals 2, we would not be here. Yet, God has done the impossible. Because He did the unexpected. Instead of punishing us, He forgave us. He, like a big dog who runs up to you and slobbers all over you and just wants to hug you, that's the way His love is. It engulfs us. He, God, has made us His home. The Spirit within us is such a miraculous thing. I don't think we, especially if you're in, from a Reformed background, because then when we hear Spirit of God, we think charismatic and you have to fall over in the Spirit and do dances with flags, that's what we're talking about. But the fact that we don't have to go to a place to be able to meet God, and then, in the Old Testament, in those days, you didn't just go to the temple, you, go, you went to the temple and then gave your offering to a priest who gave it to another priest who gave it to God. That was your connection line. That was what happened. We have God, the Spirit, within us. Like John Mark McMillan, you can go and search for the song, he puts it so beautifully. When he describes himself as a dead man now, with a ghost who lives within the confines of these carbon ribs. And one day when I'm free, I will sit, a cripple at your table, a cripple by your side. That's what Ephesians tells us. Ephesians tells us natural law says we are supposed to die. We are carbon that's going to get fire. And if it weren't for the grace of God, we would be crippled. But now we are cripples who are filled with God, whose ghost lives within us, and who enables us, even though we are crippled, to sit at his table one day. The unexpected has happened. That's what Ephesians 2 says. Why has the unexpected happened? Why have we become the impossible? We are carbon and yet we have eternity within us. Like the last verse in Ephesians says, so that we can be the unexpected for somebody else. 
so that we can do the impossible. So that we can do good. And this is something you hear often, I'm sure you've seen a lot of even memes with this or other. And there are lots of do good and good will come to you. I didn't use those because that's not what it's about. We're not doing good because we're expecting good to come to us in return. If Jesus had done that, the situation would have looked a whole lot different. We do good because the unexpected had happened to us, and that means we are not afraid of doing what feels impossible. Because it will and does feel impossible. And when you hear do good, what often happens in my mind, I think, okay, yes, that's great, but. There are lots of buts. Um, there might be a homeless man at the robot, but if I give him money, he will use it for, or but there are syndicates of homeless people who get lots of money. There are so many buts that you can give. And to that, I came across this again this week. Um, in Mother Teresa's uh, children's home, in the Missionaries of Charity children's home on the wall, is a, an inspirational quote, which doesn't feel like an inspirational quote, that she adapted from, let me get it right, Kent Keith. You can go and read Kent Keith's original as well. I want you to close your eyes and hear this. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may, probably will, accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. In this season of Lent, as we prepare for celebrating the coming of Christ, when we read Ephesians 2, it asks of us to do good anyway. Not do good because good will come to you, but most probably, in reality, good will not come to you. You might do good and it might be thrown back in your face. 
do good anyway. Why? Because we need to trust God that He is the one working. We need to ask Him through the Spirit to help us remember that it's a long view. Like, like the forest man of India had a vision of a forest, we need to have a vision of the world as God sees it. The impossible picture. And we need to live accordingly. Because we have the impossible in us. Luckily for us, it doesn't have to start big. It can start small, very small. And then tomorrow, maybe a little more. And the day after that, maybe a little more. Because, as Ephesians says, God's grace does not depend on our worthiness or unworthiness. We receive it all the same. But let's live lives that make Him proud anyway. Let's pray. Lord God, I so often forget the wonder, the impossibility of the life I am granted to live. A life in which you reached out to me first. A life in which you loved me. Anyway. Help us, Lord God, through your Spirit in us to remember how wonderful that is. To recognize the unexpected nature of all of this. Not just to thank you for it, but empower us through your spirit so that we not only recognize the impossible has happened but so that we start doing the things we think are impossible the good we think won't make a difference because in your story they do Help us to always do good anyway. Open our eyes tonight, tomorrow, to those places in our lives, those people in our lives who you've already put there. Like Ephesians says, you have created us to do good deeds that you have prepared for us. Open our eyes to those people, those things where we can make a difference. Give us the bravery to start. And may we, through your grace in us, never stop.
you have given us the mercy and the grace of your love. It's a comfortable, beautiful space to be in. So comfortable, we don't want to move, we don't want to share. Help us to share anyway. We don't want to be those people who you have changed, but whose lives don't show the change. Help us to be brave, to do the impossible. Help us to remember the example of you, Jesus Christ. You have given us such a simple roadmap to follow, so simple and so difficult. We want to follow you. I pray for everyone who's here tonight, who's listening to the podcast, that you will remind us of your grace and love and mercy, of the presence of your Spirit in us. And that you will guide us to those small things where we can do good in the week ahead and every week to come. We pray this in your name. God our Father, Christ who loves us, who saved us, and through the Spirit who cries out for us when we don't know what to pray. Amen.